0: are in Colossians chapter 3 verses 5 through 11. The handout that I created for you starts with verse 1 intentionally so that we can kind of again get the context or the run-up to the uh, section that we're actually going to be studying. And then you'll also note that verses 5 through 11 on the handout are a little larger font so you can read them differently but they're also rearranged it's from a a project that came out a couple years ago called the the readable bible and this guy took the entire scriptures genesis through revelation and formats it like this and there's for those of you who are visual learners you see the words differently than when it's just in a blur of a paragraph and so I did it this way just to help us emphasize. also gives you more room on the page to write. Of course, because you don't have tables, you're going to be poking holes in your thighs. But other than that, you're, you'll be okay. Let me read the text aloud. Since for some of you, this is the first time you're reading it, at least in the last few weeks. If then you've been raised with Christ... which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Charles Spurgeon did a sermon on the last verse called Christ is All. He gave it on August 20th, 1871. And he introduced this entire passage with this tiny little phrase. This little text is yet one of the greatest in the whole of the Bible and I feel lost in its boundless expanse. It's like one of those rare gems which are little to look upon And yet he who carries them bears the price of empires in his hand. It would not be within the compass of arithmetic to set down the value of this sapphire text. I might assume hope to carry the world in my hand as to grasp all that is contained in these few words. I cannot navigate so huge a sea. My skiff is too small and I can only coast on the shore. Who can compress all things in a sermon? And then he preaches for an hour on this sermon, on this text. That's our introduction. You can come to this passage in many different ways. Uh, I'm going to come at it multiple of them, actually. Because in verse 5, where we start, (coughs) it says... Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? The Greek word underneath the word put to death is necrostate. You hear the word necro in there, meaning dead. The King James Version translates it as mortify. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil corpiscence, cop- whatever that word is. I didn't even bother looking it up. And covetousness, which is idolatry. There's a reason why we have modern translations. <laughs> but the word mortify is actually a better word than what we have in our English text as put to death. Yeah, it means the same thing. But mortify is like this weighty word and put to death as an exclam- explanation of the meaty word we get our word mortuary from it what does it mean to mortify something I mean we've, I, I actually was trying to do some word play with Lisa last night we were talking about this and I said oh can you just see there's a, a group of people and someone says, oh I was just mortified that's how we have changed the meaning of this word it means that I was embarrassed and it loses its power when you look at the King James Bible and it says mortify yourselves mortify this body so what do you think Paul's trying to say when he's saying put to death death these things. What is he saying to mortify yourselves? What do you think? I know you've been contemplating this all week, so you know you're gonna just bounce right out with sub-due. answers, but To hmm?
1: Subdue.
0: To subdue, okay. To put away, okay. Well, remind me of the symbolism of baptism where he symbolizing dying to self. Very good. In fact, there is a lot of commentators, Carl who says this passage is very much a metaphor of baptism. Because there's other things of being put down and coming back up and the resurrection all of that. So you're right. Anybody else?
1: Bring an
0: end to? Hmm? Bring an end to? To bring an end to something? Yes. I was just thinking
1: mortify versus put to death. Put to death feels like this. Put it to death and it's dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. mortifies this process of Very suffocating good. something or depriving the weeds.
0: Very of good. Yeah, yeah. it's an ongoing process. I mean, some, one commentator, he said, imagine Paul standing up in front of the group. Now, granted, he's not because it's not a letter. But he stands up in front of the same saying, kill it. Well, yeah. But like you said... You see the cockroach running across the room, and you either scream and run in the other direction, or you get someone who's brave in your uh, your household who then walks up and bam. But it takes
1: more than one bam. To get it.
0: Exactly, and it pops up and goes, dude. You know that hurt. You know, and then it scurries around, and you keep hitting it and hitting it. Or as Lisa will do, an entire can of Raid will be exploded. <laughs> I come home from work, is like, whew, <laughs> wow. Anyway, don't use it as cologne, it doesn't help. Anyway, in my work in publishing over the last four decades, hard to believe how long I've been at this, I have had the privilege of working with a lot of different projects. And I pulled one off my shelf that I I will admit I'd kind of forgotten that I'd worked on it because it was 28 years ago. <clears throat> but Dr. James Houston, who is a professor of spirituality at Regent College in Vancouver, had worked on uh, doing abridgments and updates of classic works, and this particular one I got to work with him on. It takes three books from John Owen, the par- Puritan. Uh, writer one on the indwelling sin of the believer, one on temptation, and one called mortification of sin. And that's part three in this book. And I pulled it down and I started, Man, it was memories were coming back of working on this text with him and just reading it. And, and let me just say, if you're going to read a Puritan, you got to really want to read a Puritan.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, they are... Worse than a politician who says the same thing over and over and over again because they're trying to make a point, but they're trying to come at it from different directions so you finally can grasp it for yourself. Well, John Owen wrote To mortify is to take away the principle of all his strength, vigor, and power so he cannot act or exert or put forth in any proper actings on its own. He then asks the question, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will kill you. Why kill sin? every unmortified sin will do two things. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor and it will darken the soul and deprive it of comfort and grace. So I begin contemplating this, I mean the word isn't here in the text. The word sin is not here. But we know what he's talking about. Paul doesn't have to be blatant to us, because he lists some things that we look at and go, "Oh yeah, that's bad." Ah, that's that. No, no, that. that's not good stuff. I mean sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. I mean, you don't want any one of those associated with your resume." And I started thinking again, the whole idea of mortification of this sin. I don't know, you know, I've been around a while. Some of us have been around longer than me. Um, We don't talk a lot about sin, do we? It's uncomfortable. There was a pastor of a very large church in this town about 20 years ago who made the statement to his elders, and it got around later, That he would no longer use the word sin in his sermons. Because it made the people feel bad. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the morning service was to have them go home feeling good about themselves. Mm -hmm. Really? Okay, yeah, there's a a element of truth to that. I mean, we come for the encouragement and the praise and the worship and the uplift. At the same time, if you don't talk about the other half of the equation, you're losing something big time. And as I was looking, you know, and reading on the mortification of sin and the indwelling sin of believers, and I'm kind of, you know, piling it on in my own head, I'm thinking, all right, we don't like to talk about this, so I'm going to take the risk to talk about it. And then in the mail came the February 12th, to 20, 2024 issue of Publishers Weekly. You don't know this project. I do. I have read it religiously for 40 years. I probably looked at it and realized, you know, I have read 2,000 issues of this crazy thing. <laughs> because it's an industry... Rag. I mean, it, it talks about the deals that are being made, the, the authors that are out there, the trends, and it's all general market. This isn't Christian. And I'm flipping through it. I'm looking at some of the ads because, you know, I recognize this publisher. I am like, oh, well, look, look what they're doing. That's interesting. And then I turn to this page. And I will hold it up so you can all can see it. And the headline. Queen of sin. Right when I'm contemplating mortification of sin, and here's glorification. Because this author is on the bestseller list. Her books are selling millions, not tens, millions of copies. And this particular series takes a character who is in the 1%, very wealthy, and wants to live each one of the seven deadly sins. And this is her series. And it's all the glorification of somebody diving into a particular sin in the context of soft pornography. This is, these are books are salacious, they're smutty, they are bestsellers. I don't know how to contrast anything better than to hold these two publications up next to each other and say, the mortification of sin and the queen of sin. And everyone looks to her and says, oh, I want to go to her book signing. I want to be close to her. And we don't dare talk about this amongst ourselves.
1: What is your
0: name? Her name is Anna Whying. And the imprint is run by none other than E.L. James, who is well known for her Fifty Shades of Mm Grey. This is what we are called as believers to stand up against and say, wait a second. You're calling this good? Okay, she may be an amazing writer. I don't want to know. But we have this cycling and circulating around us at every moment, at every turn. And that's just the book publishing industry. We're not talking about movies. We're not talking about film. We're not talking about television. We're not talking about advertising. We're not talking about the internet. Holy moly. We as believers, if we feel called to the following of Christ and God, we are being assaulted. And we must mortify daily. Romans 8:13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Joel Beek has this brilliant illustration. (coughs) He said, I once read of a missionary who had in his garden a shrub that bore poisonous leaves. (coughs) And at the time... He had a child that was prone to put anything within reach into his mouth. So naturally, he dug the shrub out and threw it away. The shrub's roots, however, were very deep. And soon, the shrub sprouted again. Repeatedly, the missionary had to dig it out. There was no solution but to inspect the ground every day and dig up the shrub every time it surfaced. Sin is like that shrub. It needs constant uprooting. Our hearts need continual mortification. And John Owen, he's quoting again from John Owen's book, we must be exercising every day and in every duty. Sin will not die unless it be constantly weakened. Spare it and it will heal its wounds and recover its strength. We must continually watch against the operations of this principle of sin. In our duties, in our calling, in conversation, in retirement, in our straits, in our enjoyments, in all we do, if we are negligent on any occasion, we shall suffer by it. Every mistake, every neglect is perilous. And then I wrote down, huh, there's never a ceasefire in this war. There's never a timeout. Or, let's take a wrestling metaphor, there's no tap out. If sin has a stranglehold on you, you can't just, let me go, let me go. No, it will strangle you until you collapse. And you want to go, but Steve, that sounds an awful lot like legalism. Oh, come on, man. You're trying to explain it away. If you think becoming a Christian makes you perfect, you don't understand the reality of it all. We are fallen creatures. I had someone the other day we were having this interesting conversation and he finally said, "You know, what's the point of, you know, what's the point of all this? Why do we even go to church?" I mean, why? why? And I said, you, "You really don't get it, do you?" It isn't about how you can be saved because mortification has nothing to do with your salvation. Mortification is everything of how you live your salvation. And be a beacon to others. That is what sets us apart. So let's look at these wonderful, lovely things. Let's just dive into the sins in this list. Yay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just repeat that comment. Mortification is the sentence or just it? I just made it up. I don't remember what I said. Mortification has <laughs> nothing to do with your
1: salvation. Oh,
0: thank you for taking notes. <laughs> That's exactly right. Mortification has nothing to do with your salvation. It has everything to do with how you live out your salvation. And that's where the twist is. People talk about legalism and they talk about, well, we don't want to be judgy. That's not the point. The point is you're trying to point out to someone else and saying, you really need to get yourself right. You've lost your way. So this lovely list... Sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia. Guess what the root word there is. Has a whole different meaning in today's society. It's one click away. Wherever you turn. It's in a novel. Sitting on the bestseller list. These, this one is actually in other vice lists. You can find it in Mark 7. 21. Galatians 5.19. Ephesians 3. And in Revelation 9.21, there's no question what he's talking about. The idea of having relations outside of marriage, outside of any sort of God-centered relationship, is sin. The Bible's really clear about it. There's no equivocation. He talks about impurity. Well, you kind of go, all right, what does that mean? Well, it's the opposite of holiness. Holiness is to be pure, to be clean. Impure means to be not clean. So we have, you know, there's commentators and others saying, well, he's trying to make uh, reference to um, being religiously pure so that you could go to worship. Or, you know, there were certain things that, you may, that defiled you. Yes. But I think Paul is putting this paragraph under one topic. And he's talking to the Colossian church. He's not writing to the people in the street. He's talking to the members of Camelback Bible Church. That's what makes this astounding. Because we like to pull this out and use it as our our banner. You know, you bad people out there You know, Scottsdale Fashion Square, you're bad people. And you realize, Paul was actually talking to me. Uh, Crud. Because didn't, in the previous verses, he admonish us to seek the things that are above, to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are the earth. Well, that's an internal thing. Passion. The word passion, the actual root word, means lust. So it's pretty clear what he's talking about there. Evil desire. Desire is to want something. To seek something. And don't we have the word seek in verse 1? He's contrasting it again. In the Greek, we lose this a little bit because we see our English words. But the word seek and the word desire are very similar. They're not the same word, but they're very similar. You go to James chapter one verse 14, it says, "Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire." There's the same word used in James. Then we come to covetousness. it's interesting. the NIV translates that word as greed, which is incorrect. It's more than just greed because we see greed as money related covetousness is to want something that's not yours and in the, this context he's talking about sexual purity and impurity is to see that person and go I want them I want to possess them yes covetousness as one of the 10 commandments is that yet you know it does talk about the idea of possessions I think there's a a direct thing here to the idea of a desire to own something, but then he adds the little comma, which is idolatry. Well, what's idolatry? Idolatry is to replace God with something else. That's idolatry. It doesn't mean going, praying to a shrine. Yeah, it does, but it... It's more than that. <clears throat> so when we, if we really want to dive into covetousness, we could do an entire ten-week uh, series on the Ten Commandments, and we could dive into this. But to think, I want that so much it becomes my focus, and I stop thinking about Christ, I stop thinking about God. I stop pursuing the finer and the better things that I should be setting my mind on things above. Instead, I'm setting it on my acquisition. And I brought this up a little bit last week when I said one challenge about acquisition, as soon as we have it, we have buyer's remorse. And it's not enough. Because while I have this really cool iPhone, there's a new one. And it's bigger, and it's faster, and it has four cameras on the back, not three. Oh my goodness, i got to have it. Well, come on, you know. I can still do more on this thing than I could 20 years ago. Um, I can live without it. Well, maybe. Um, Did you see the point? He's trying to say, don't let Things don't let other pursuits replace God. That's idolatry. And the Greek word underneath covetousness is pleo, P L E O, N E X I A, pleo nexia. Pleonexia. And believe it or not, pleo or pleon means more, and the underlying word of nexia or exia means to have. So that literally means, have more, more. It's never enough. In 1973, the average size of a newly built home was 1,500 square feet. In 2015, the average size of a newly built home was 2,500 square feet. But the average population per family household was fewer people. So the average, home liver goes from having 500 square feet of the house to almost 750 square feet of the house just theirs. They say the difference between a home built in the 60s and a home built in the 2000s is closet space. For those of you who live in older homes, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So What industry has grown up since the 60s? Storage units. They didn't exist 50 years ago. If they were, they were warehouses. Mm -hmm. Now you have your own little air conditioned unit (laughs) to put your stuff in. Anyway. And pay for it monthly, yes. For the privilege of stuffing stuff. Anyway, we could go on. So why is all this set out here? Paul is asking us to be radically different from the world around us. He's challenging the church to say people you're acting just like your neighbors. Stop it. Be different. Be radically different. And guess what? They will wonder what's different about you and will be attracted to it, and begin asking questions. Why are you different? Well, there's another little reason why this is here. And I love the fact that Paul put verse 6 right in the middle of this passage. Now, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, on account of the wrath of God... Um, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Okay. We don't talk about sin, but we really don't talk about the wrath of God. If you want to rank things that we don't talk about, wrath of God is like number one. Like, you can't talk about this God who's going to slay you because God is love God would never do that really you're going to take that risk huh I'd say there's a lot of history that shows otherwise for those of you who like our family uh, watch the Super Bowl for the commercials um Well, we watch for the game, as long as it's a good game. But I, one of my tasks is to write down every commercial as they happen, and then we all vote on them afterwards. And now that our kids are scattered everywhere, we have this little thing. This is the ones we liked. You know, it's becomes this fun thing. And I have kept all of those lists over the years. And it's, like, it's really kind of funny, open that folder, and oh yeah, I remember that one. That was, wow. There was one that some of you may have seen this uh, past week uh, that was an attempt to talk about Jesus and it was the Jesus gets us showing various scenes of an individual washing the feet of someone else who's different than they are and then the blast thing is you know Jesus and that changes to he gets us like, you know, and you kind of go, and you you wait for the next one because you know the potato chips are running out. and You just kind of don't think about it until later. You start going. Of course, Lisa had an immediate reaction. Um, it began to percolate in mine. And then a pastor put out on X, or formerly known as Twitter, the way the commercial should have been done. I don't know if you've seen the redo go look for it. It's brilliant because he has the picture of former lesbian, former KKK, former this, former that, former this, and then at the very end it says he saves us. And then in the middle of the he blank us rattling all these different words. Redeems, loves, chose. You just
1: boom, 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 boom.
0: Jesus. And I just went, that is the message that should have been broadcast to 50 million people. Instead, what was broadcast was a I'm not going to say it wasn't true. Jesus does get us. He became one of us. So that He could save us. So He could redeem us. He showed such great compassion for the unworthy that He took upon Himself the wrath of God which cannot abide anything ungodly. And you go, okay, well, here's where my work again cross-pollinates with my teaching. I get a proposal for a new book from a seminary student who has a new idea on what the atonement should look like. And I'm thinking, okay, he's very smart, very clever. But he goes after the idea of penal substitution, P-E-N-A-L. If you think of penal as the prison code, the, um, the penalty, the idea that there is a judgment for sin, Jesus took our place. And the point being is that, well, bottom line, the author would say, I can't believe in a God who would do that. Because that's cosmic child abuse.
1: What?
0: What? Think about that for a second. This is becoming a very common theme. Is that the idea that God would allow his son to die is child abuse. And you kind of go, wait, I, I'm not... I'm I'm not smart enough to argue this point. But seriously, this is out there because they say, I can't believe in a God who would condemn sin. So we go back to our passage. The wrath of God. We've been talking about sin. And you say, well, that makes me uncomfortable. Good. That's the whole point. The idea that that God would say, no. Okay, go ahead no, You're not hurting anybody I Actually had a co-worker when I was working in construction in college Who basically said, you know, I kind of do whatever I want As long as I'm not hurting anybody, it's okay and Because they all knew I was a Bible major at Grand Canyon Every one of that crew ended up asking me about God things or bringing it up or justifying Their lifestyle, to me, it's like, I have no power in this life. I'm the gopher in this, but they would be coming to me going, ah, you know, I wish I knew now back then because I could have had better conversations with these men that were lost and were seeking an answer. I think back on that. But the wrath of God means that God intensely hates sin. That's a definition from Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. God cannot love goodness without hating evil. They are two halves of the same coin. God's wrath, however, is different from man's wrath. Which is why it's interesting, if you look at your, your text, wrath is in the next list of sins. But it's man's wrath versus God's wrath. God's wrath, I'm sorry, man's wrath can be capricious or petulant and is based in anger often. At the same time, man's wrath is sometimes done in such a way where punishment is withheld and therefore justice is not served. And aren't we seeing that in our society? Where lawbreaking is given a pass. I'll just show up four months from now for your court date. Like they're going to show up. They just move to another state. And then they don't have to worry about it anymore. However, God's wrath executes punishment, and it's part of his justice which is an outgrowth of His love. If He didn't love us, He would not punish for sin. Does that make sense? It seems counterintuitive, but it's not. Because someone will say, well, God can't be wrathful. Well, yes, He can. Well, if He's wrathful, then He's not loving. If you've ever been a parent... (laughs) You can kind of know that there's times where you, you got to bring the law down. And punishment is deserved because they're looking at you in the eye going, I told you not to touch it. I told you not to touch it.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, let's make it a burner on the stove. You'll, uh, the burner will teach you the punishment. Leon Morris put it this way Unless we give the real, a real content to the wrath of God, unless we hold that men and women really deserve to have God visit upon them the painful consequence of their wrongdoing, we empty God's forgiveness of its meaning. Think about that for a second. Forgiveness is meaningless. If there is no consequence to sin. And therefore Christ's death on the cross is meaningless. If you say that God is only the God of love and would never punish anybody. Then what in the world is the whole Jesus Christ thing about? For if there is no ill desert God ought to overlook sin. We can think of forgiveness as something real only when we hold that sin has betrayed us in a situation where we deserve to have God inflict on us the most serious consequence. When the logic of the situation demands that he should take action against the sinner and he and yet takes action and he takes action for him, then and only then can we speak of grace. There is no room for grace if there is no suggestion of consequence. So if you get into a cyclical argument with someone about, oh, God is love. No, God is love, but he is also a God of wrath. You have to say, well, then here's your logical outgrowth of that conversation is then to say, well, what is then forgiveness? If there's no consequence, then what are you forgiving? Just do whatever you want. And it's also interesting to think that in that Colossian church, was the forerunner of the Gnostic faith, which separated the body from the spirit. And so they could say, I can do whatever I want to my body as long as my spirit stays whole. And think of that. You may meet people who say, well, I'm a a religious person, but they're out in debauchery on the weekends and they said, well, that's, that's cool. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I still go to church on Sunday. I just get rid of my, you know, my sin stuff on Saturday. I went to college with kids like that. It just always befuddled me how they could separate the two. No, you can't. One connects to the other. So he has this wrath comment stuck in between another list of vices. <coughs> Verse 7. In these you two once walked when you were living in them and now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Huh. Those sound very different from the other list. Because didn't that other list say things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, or lust, evil desire, and covetousness? Those are bad. I mean, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. I mean, that's Tuesday. I wrote down here, some Christians, and in parentheses, dare I include myself, Readily condemn the vices of verse 5, but let some of the ones in verse 8 slip. Anger, gossip, but both are sins and both lists are about self-control. Think about that for a second. I mean anger The word anger is actually the same Greek word as the word wrath in verse 6. And yet, in our translations, they translate the next word as wrath. Because it's the word thumos, which is a different word. It kind of means the same thing. but There, Paul sees no conflict between the wrath of God and the wrath of men. The wrath of men... Rage is another word that is placed there. Or indignation. In this case, the meaning of the word thumos is not an outburst as a you know snap of anger. It's a boiling anger that then has its expression. Malice. Well, what is he talking about here? Well, you go again into the underlying meaning. And you see the word, the, uh, the meaning of vicious disposition or being mean-spirited or to inflict harm on another person. <coughs> and that can be done verbally. That can be done emotionally. You look at the word slander. That's the Greek word blasphema. To blaspheme someone is to tear another person down via character assassination. It is to undermine who they are with your words. And then you have obscene talk. Well, the unfortunate problem with that word, it's the only place in the entire New Testament that Greek word is used. So, they believe that this is about as close as they can get to what the meaning is. But now we have the problem of defining obscene. And you've got to go, well, we deal with this in publishing, by the way, because and I'm just going to make general motions to different parts of the room. I'm not pointing anybody out, but you can say people over here might think this particular word is okay because you use it in your house all the time. The people over here, you spank your kids if it ever comes out of their mouth. Same word. Now what? Well, we don't want to use the word cuz we're going to offend this group. But then this, then this writer says, but now it's not realistic. You know? And the other challenge is that obscenity seems to be culturally defined. Simply, I have a book in my, on my shelf that goes through the different cultures in the world. And if you are going to do business with that culture, here's the things you don't do in that culture. In fact, there are some cultures, if you're an American, do not give a thumbs up in that, in that country. You are making an obscene gesture of the worst kind. And you're going, cool. And I'm like, oh, look at you, you potty mouth. I'm like, wait, what? And I'm going to put you on the spot. Is there anything with, that were culturally different in France than in America?
1: When we would have Canadian Québécois come and study with us in France, their obscenity all had to do with Catholic things. So they would use saints' names. Tabernacle was one of the worst words you could ever say in public.
0: Really? Tabernacle?
1: Tabernacle. Because they've taken a holy word and they've turned it into profanity over a centuries in Quebec.
0: Fascinating.
1: And when I would talk about it in the Old Testament, this poor fellow was shocked every time I heard it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> And see, there becomes the question, well, he's talking about obscene talk. Well... <clears throat> We in our culture, we generally know what is obscene or coarse. Mm-hmm. Might be another way of putting it. The bottom line is, clean up your tongue, and you will be set apart in a good way. And if someone starts to becoming potty mouth around you, you can say, "Could you just kind of,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, cool your jets a little bit?" That's man. There's better ways of saying that. And they're going to be offended, but they will know where you stand. And the next time they're with you, they will probably be a little more careful in what they say. And then he adds, oh, by the way, don't lie to one another, verse 9. Interesting, because it's usually never put in the list. But remember, the verses aren't inspired, verse numbers. So you have to look at and go, well, lying is also a verbal Thing, just like these others can be. And Satan is the father of lies, John 8, 44. And all I have to say on that is how can you reconcile living in truth as a Christian when untruth is on your lips? Sometimes we will shade the truth to protect ourselves from condemnation, or to make ourselves look better, or sound better, so that someone else will think better of us by what we're saying, and that is not godly. Seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Notice that the, the being renewed is a present tense ongoing action. You are constantly being renewed. But this is not like Romans 12:2 or Ephesians 4.23, where we are commanded to renew. Instead, this renewal is coming from God's grace. No, it doesn't notice it doesn't say, now you be renewed. Or renew yourself. It's saying you are being renewed. In knowledge after the image of the creator. It's not our power. It is his. And that picture of putting off the old self. And putting on the new. um, (coughs) I started thinking of that metaphor. And came across a couple different writers. And it was just one of those things that started to stir in my head. And I started to think. This isn't just putting on a new sweater because the old one's a little ratty. It's, you know, it's comfortable but it's starting to smell. So I put on a new one. No, this isn't just changing your clothes. This is stripping off your old clothes and then stripping your skin. And then stripping your muscles and sinews, ligaments, tendons, all of it, down to the skeleton so we can finally see your blackened heart. And then Jesus comes in and changes your heart. And then rebuilds you with new muscles, new sinews, new skin, new clothes, and you are a new creature, a new creation. That's biblical phraseology right there. What a picture. Galatians 3.27 For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Christ. Romans 13.14 Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Ephesians 4.24 Put on the new self which is the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And 1 Corinthians 15.53 For this perishable must put on the imperishable. Then he comes in, he's building to a conclusion. Verse 11 Here in this church, in this body of Christ, there is no Greek or Jew. There's no difference. There's no circumcised and uncircumcised. Surgery is not required. I mean, I even wrote kind of silly here. I said, no shirt. No shoes, no snip, no service. No, that is not how it works. It has nothing to do with any of that. There's no barbarian or Scythian. And you have to go, what in the world is he talking about? Well, the barbarians were anyone who did not speak Greek or Latin. So they were considered uncouth they were considered backwoods and they actually think the word barbarian came from hearing someone from another language going bar 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 and then they all are barbarians now we've seen that before in scripture but we don't see Scythians mentioned very often who in the world are Scythians well they are on the outer reaches of the Roman Empire They live on the north shore of the Black Sea. Anybody know your geography and know what country that is? Anybody? Ukraine.
1: Ukraine.
0: You could insert Ukrainians. (laughs) Right there. That's how they were viewed by the Roman Empire. They were the worst of the barbarians. Josephus actually wrote, they differ little from brute beasts. Wow! And yet he's saying, in this church, in the body of Christ, there's no barbarians, there's no Scythians, there's no Jews, there's no Greek, and there's no slave or free. And in the Roman Empire, you are one or the other. It was a binary situation. You were free, or you weren't. And more than half of the population were slaves, in some form or fashion. And he's saying, here, none of that. Why? Because of the last phrase. Because Christ is all in all. And if there's ever a more powerful five-word sentence... It's hard to find it. Christ is all. Six words. And in all. J.C. Ryle said, Christ is all. These words are the essence and substance of Christianity. If our hearts can really go along with them, it is well for our souls. If not, we can be sure we have much to learn. Charles Spurgeon, in that sermon I mentioned, he said a couple things there are many who unconsciously think to themselves that Jesus Christ is much, yet that they do not understand that he is all. I allude to many seeking souls who say, I put my trust in Jesus this morning, but I don't feel now like I did this morning. I see. You think there are at least a little of your feelings to be added to the Savior's work so that it is good for you? I showed a fun video to Lisa last night that I'll be posting on my blog on, a, on this coming Friday of bad hymns. Yeah. And you actually have a worship team on purpose are singing, I surrender some. <laughs> and I exalt me. And you're kind of going, Oh. That's actually kind of true. Um, And it's brilliant. It's funny. It's making a point. We think that we add something to this formula. And we don't. Spurgeon goes on, You are the emptiness, and Christ is the fullness. You are the filthiness, and He is the cleansing. You are nothing, and He is all. The sooner you consent to this, the better. Have done with saying, I would come to the Savior if this or if that. This quibbling will delude, delay, and destroy you. Come as you are just now at this moment. For Christ is not almost all, but all in all. Christ is all, not in my justification, but in my sanctification, He is all, not in the first steps of my faith, but in the last. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. There is no point between the gates of hell and the gates of heaven where a believer shall have to say, Christ failed me here, now I have to rely on my own strength. From the dunghill of our corruption to the throne of our perfection, there is no point left to hazard or set aside for us to supply. Our salvation has Christ to begin with, Christ to go with, and Christ to finish with, and in all points, at all times, for every man or woman born that ever shall be saved. Christ is all, in all. If we can absorb that, and focus on that, and just let that permeate every fabric of our being, then these lists of sins are of no consequence because you won't have trouble with them. If your focus is on Him, He will direct your paths. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for our time together. Amazing how Bible study turns into a sermon. And yet, shouldn't it? We need to take Your Word and impress it upon our souls so that it becomes such a part of us that we cannot separate ourselves from You and we should not even contemplate that. Lord, thank You for this reminder, this encourages, this, this command. You are all and in all all that we do, all that we say, all that we believe. Praise your holy name, in Jesus' name. Amen.